Good afternoon, and welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Scott Greeson, Conservation Director with Friends of the Eel River. The Eco News Report is an exclusive feature of KHSU brought to you by the North Coast Environmental Center, publisher of our regional environmental newspaper, the Eco News. Don't forget, you can find this show and other KHSU public affairs shows on the audio archives page at khsu.org. My guest today is Michael Belchick. Mike is the senior water policy analyst with the Yurok tribe. He has more than two decades of experience working on North Coast and Klamath River fisheries issues. And today we're going to be talking about an important ruling that's just come down from Federal District Court in San Francisco about fisheries health and and fish flows. In the spirit of full disclosure, I should note that Mike is also the president of the board of Friends of the Eel River. So he's, in a way, my boss. So with that said, hi, Mike. Welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you for having me, Scott. I appreciate it. Yeah. And this is just a, a really fascinating story, but also seems like a really important one. Let's start with what happened, and then we'll get into what's what it means. Okay. Well, what happened is that the judge denied a motion to vacate the injunction, which provided for flows for fish down the Klamath River. So probably a little bit of background would help people to understand that. So the Klamath River starts up in Oregon, and there's a large federal irrigation project up there that diverts a pretty large amount of water to some farms. They grow potatoes and alfalfa and irrigated pasture and things like that. But And so they therefore reduce the flow of the Klamath River up in that area. And... In 1997, coho salmon were listed under the Endangered Species Act. That listing requires the federal government to describe what its impacts are to endangered species and also prohibits the government from taking, and by that I mean killing or harassing or harming, an excessive number of those fish. When the federal government does an action, it writes what they call a biological assessment. It says, here's what we're going to do, and this is what it might do to coho. And then another federal agency writes what they call a biological opinion. It says, we've read your analysis of what you think you're going to do. Here's the requirements for your operation going into the future, including a limit on the take of the endangered species. So back me up here, Mike, just for a second. The federal action that we're talking about here is actually the irrigation. Yes. So the federal action is to withdraw water from Upper Klamath Lake and provide it for consumptive use for irrigation. So this water then is consumed by growing the crops and doesn't get returned to the river. Well, at least most of it doesn't. Okay. So the agencies talk about what the effects are going to be on fish and then... So you have a roadmap of what the agency can do and what the amount of take can be of this endangered species. And so under the most recent biological opinion, which was in 2013, they blew way past their take limits in 2014 and 15 with regard to fish disease. So one of the things that this biological opinion found was that lowering the flows of the river would make the fish disease problem worse for the juvenile fish. Okay, wait a minute now. We're going to have to talk about fish disease because... Exactly. This isn't entirely obvious. So we're talking about coho salmon here. Let's think a a little bit about what we're talking about. They're also called silver salmon. 
These are fish that, from my memory, spawn and then have to spend a year in fresh water before they go back out? Yeah. So they're a little bit different than Chinook in that the young spend an entire year in the river and they migrate out their second year instead of their first year like Chinook do. Which makes them a little more prone to potential diseases or impacts from fresh water. So Exactly. So tell us about the the issue with the with Klamath River Coho here. It's what is Sea Shasta? Sure. So Sea Shasta is a it's a disease that has two hosts. So a lot of in nature a lot of parasites have alternate hosts that they use. And in this case, sea shasta inhabits the guts of the Chinook and under high doses causes death of the fish. So Chinook and coho both get it. There's an alternate host of this polychaete worm in the Klamath River. Now what happened was that between the irrigation diversions and the presence of the dams and the loss of the wintertime flooding flows all combined to make the upper bed of the river near the dam a perfect place to grow this little tiny worm that acts as an alternate host for this disease. So so actually what we did by sort of reconfiguring the river with the series of dams we built on the Klamath was actually make a system that already contained this disease organism, one that would produce sort of artificially high levels of it? Yes, exactly. That's okay. exactly what happened. So, you know, rivers carry more than just water. They also carry sediment. And this is very important to a river's function and, and its ability to naturally regulate itself from diseases like this. So when the dams were put in, when the dams were put in place, the flow of sediment stopped. But the flow of water didn't stop. Even though it's reduced at sometimes a year, there were still flood flows during the wintertime and those high flows removed all the sediment that could be moved until nothing was left but stuff that really was difficult to move. And what that meant was that the bed of the river was then static year after year instead of mobile like a natural riverbed. And that that static riverbed, that unchanging and armored riverbed that rarely turned over anymore, provided the perfect habitat for this disease host. And then the fish started dying. So a normal river, an, an undammed river, would be changing constantly, and that change itself would tend to suppress the polychaete host. Okay. Exactly, yeah. So the, the moving sediment wipes out the colonies. It never wipes all of them out, but then the worm colonies have to restart. But if you're not doing that, they can persist year after year, and eventually... Up, up near Iron Gate Dam, the bed of the river is just coated solid with these worms. It's amazing. So, as you said, basically the federal agency allowing irrigation diversions had blown past the limits set in the 2013 biological opinion. What does that then mean for management of the river? Well, that's a great question. So... So what had happened was that they had so many fish got sick in the river that they blew past their take limits, and they had expressed an intent to simply just rework the limits. Like, well, we went past the limit, so let's just raise the limits of amount that we could kill with this fish disease. The Yurok tribe and the Hoopa Valley tribe objected via letters to the federal government, and then both of us ended up filing 
60-day notice of intent to sue. So what we were suing about was the violation of the take limits. In other words, too many fish died from disease, and it was over the limit of fish that could die from the disease that was stated in the biological opinion. And what we did, though, is we wanted to solve this problem. The, the whole idea wasn't just to take these guys to court or prove that they were wrong, but it was really to fix the problem and fix the river. So we set about to work collaboratively with federal scientists to understand exactly what it was that was causing this problem and what could be done about it. So working with the federal scientists, we produced what you might call a base layer of science so we, we looked at things like, well, what about the fish themselves? What about those polychaete worms we're talking about? What about the fish disease? What do flows have to do with anything, sediment and everything? From all that, the tribes then authored a document called the guidance document that had a recommendation for flow measures to control this disease. If you're just tuning in, this is the Eco News Report. I'm Scott Greeson, Conservation Director with Friends of the Eel River. I'm talking with Michael Belchek, Senior Water Policy Analyst with the Yurok Tribe. And we're talking about basically the management of the Klamath River and legal and scientific efforts to protect salmon in the river. Mike, you were talking, you were describing the tribe's effort to define basically flows that would help reduce disease impacts on salmon in the Klamath River and how the court addressed the, those flows. Yeah, exactly. The All the administration and policy end of it can be complicated with the Endangered Species Act and the take limits and all this, but what was happening to the river was really simple to understand. The inability of or the lack of high flows during the wintertime was causing a static riverbed, thus causing this multiplication of the alternate hosts for this disease, and then that was all causing really high mortalities for the fish in the river. So when you say really high mortalities, what are we talking about, an extra 5%? Well, what we had in 2014 and 2015 was 81% of sampled fish in 2014, and 91% of sampled fish had the disease and thus were expected to die from that. What's the mortality rate in fish that have the disease? Well, it is possible for the fish to get a low dose of it and in lower temperatures to overcome it, but at the temperatures and disease levels we were seeing in those years, the prognosis was that probably most of those fish were going to die. So we're talking about an infection and sort of mortality effect that's in the range of the vast majority of the juvenile fish in the river. Well, yes. So the sample percentage can be higher than the actual percentage, but the bottom line is that there was a very significant portion of the fish in the river were getting sick and dying from this disease, and we felt like we had to do something about it. And just let's back up a little bit to basic salmon biology. You know, we benefit from salmon coming back to rivers in what used to be great numbers, but in order for any salmon to come back to the rivers, a lot more have to go out to the ocean. What's the, what's the rough ratio we're talking about there? Well, the I think the ratio you're talking about is small to adult, and that can really vary. And I don't have that number right off the top of my head. But the point is it takes more than a couple of 
young fish to make an adult. Exactly. Yeah, yeah a lot of a lot of juvenile fish need to make it to the ocean because the ocean is a rough place to grow up. Right. And the mortalities are high. So anytime you're costing yourself a lot of young fish through disease or other mortality, that results in reduced adult returns in subsequent years. And the other piece of this is that the most important predictor of the health and sort of vigor of a run is, in terms of the juvenile fish going out, is their health and their size. And being sick makes it harder to get fed and fatter and fitter. Exactly. Or it can just cause direct mortality. They right. can just die before they even reach the ocean. After after we developed that science, we went to court and we sued the federal government, which is never easy. They have armies of lawyers. But the judge ordered an injunction to release certain flows to turn over the gravel. So we won the right to have very high flows in the winter in order to keep the bed of the river turning over. And so the first year we did that was in February 2017, a little over a year ago. We had two very high flow events, and they seemed to be very successful. The disease rate in 2017 was extremely low, and the river never reached any sort of values that might cause alarm. The second kind of flow that we won was the ability to release emergency flows. So in the event that these high winter flows didn't work, and we still had a return of the disease, we were calling for increased springtime flows that we call dilution flows in order to dilute the number of infective spores in the river and thus lower the fish disease problem that way. So we won all of that last year. We didn't need the dilution flows last year. And in this year, the farmers who who had intervened in this lawsuit made a motion to vacate the injunction saying that the dilution flows weren't necessary and that they would be an undue hardship on the farms in the upper basin. I want to focus on that last statement for just a quick second. So the case we're talking about is actually a lawsuit between the Yurok and the Hoopa tribes and the federal agencies, the Bureau of Reclamation, the National Marine Fisheries Service, but then the irrigators in the upper basin intervened in the lawsuit and tried to set aside the the court's decision to implement these flows. Is that roughly right? Exactly. So, yeah, one thing you can do if there's a court case that will directly affect your interests, but you're not involved in it, you can make a motion to intervene in it. And there you would just show that you have standing or that you would be material affected by the outcome of the case. And in this case, the judge granted the various farm districts that asked for intervener status. He granted it to them. So now the farmers are involved in the court case. So these are not farmers in the San Joaquin or lower Central Valley. What we're talking about here is upper Klamath Irrigation Districts, right? Yes. So we're talking the Klamath Irrigation Project, which is located near Klamath Falls. And there's about 235,000 acres of land that's irrigated from the federal water project there. That was, It's pretty old. It was put in place in 1905. And I just I mentioned that because there are other situations where we're talking about federal lawsuits over water and flows and fish and salmon that are on the Trinity that do have to do that that are implicated in water deliveries to the Central Valley. But that's not what we're talking about here. That's correct. So the irrigators then filed for a motion to vacate the injunction. 
The federal government didn't agree with the irrigators. They just said, we don't have enough water to implement guidance measure four, which is the dilution flows. Uh, We had asked for up to 50,000 acre feet of water with an acre foot of water being enough to cover one acre of land one foot deep. And the federal government's position was, well, we don't have enough to provide the full 50,000 acre feet, so we're not going to provide any of it. (laughs) That doesn't seem, yeah. That's pretty much what the judge's reaction was, too, that it didn't make sense, and he ordered them to provide whatever they could, even if it was less than 50,000 acre feet. Right. And I think the judge said something along the lines of, you know, my injunction said requires partial compliance in the event that full compliance is not possible. So That's correct. His original order said provide up to 50,000 acre feet, et cetera. And he quoted that a couple of times. Okay. So where does this leave us now? The the scouring flows have happened. Do you still need the emergency flows or do you not know yet? How does that work? So we don't know as of right now whether we're going to need the dilution flows and we're hopeful that we won't need any of them at all. Nonetheless, they have to hold it in reserve and cannot deliver it to agriculture. So even though we might not need those flows this year, agriculture can't use that water until June 15th, which is the end of the window for our provision of the dilution flows. And they'd rather use it before that? They would definitely rather use that before that. I I think it's just fair to acknowledge that this court ruling does produce a definite hardship for the family farms in the upper Klamath Basin. There's no getting around it. But this case wasn't about going against farmers or anything. This case was about protecting the fish in the river and providing the fish with what they needed in the river. And that's all it was about. If you're just tuning in, this is the Eco News Report. I'm Scott Greeson, Conservation Director with Friends of the Eel River. I'm talking with Michael Belchek, Senior Water Policy Analyst with the Yurok Tribe. And we're talking about the management of the Klamath River and legal and scientific efforts to protect salmon in the river. Okay. Mike, you've been part of this long-term effort to negotiate and secure an agreement that's now in place to remove some of the Klamath dams. How is that agreement going to affect the situation with the parasites in the Klamath River and, and fisheries health overall? Are we going to need to continue to dicker with flows, basically? Well, I think there will always be a need to keep your eye on the flows and everything, but we believe the science shows that dam removal will provide considerable help for this disease situation that we're having in the river every year. The reason is that removing the dams will restore the natural sediment flow down the river and will provide for a much more mobile bed. We believe we can mobilize the bed and keep the polychaete worms under control with far less peak flows than are required right now, given that the bed has been over-stabilized and fossilized in place for decades. Hmm. And what's the prognosis for that agreement? Is it on track? Well, that's a good question. So just to back up a little bit, the original agreement to take the four dams out on the Klamath was signed in 2010. It's known as the Klamath Hydroelectric Settlement Agreement, or KHSA. It was paired with another agreement that, without going into too long a story, didn't didn't end up making it through Congress, the Klamath Basin Restoration Agreement. So in 2014, the 
Klamath Hydroelectric Settlement Agreement was renegotiated and structured such that a nonprofit corporation is going to take possession of the dams on the Klamath River for the sole purpose of removing them. The company is still going to pay for the majority, the first $200 million of dam removal. The original timing was for the dams to start coming out in 2020, but because of regulatory delays and in developing the environmental permitting, it's it's looking like it's going to be 2021 right now. It's officially slipped by one year. But I will say this sounded like when we negotiated the deal, like 2020 was so far away mm-hmm. that it was never going to happen. Now it's right around the corner. That's a good point. Our conversation today has been almost entirely about coho salmon and a little bit about Chinook, but the Klamath River has a lot of other fish in it, and your role with the Yurok Fisheries Department deals with a lot of other stuff. So what else is going on, and, and how will they be affected by these flows and dam removal? So one of the really interesting parts of working for the Yurok Tribe is how the tribe really manages and cares for all the runs of fish whether they're threatened or whether they're not threatened. And there's an incredible diversity of runs in the Klamath River. So there's three runs of Chinook. We have fall Chinook, late fall, spring Chinook. There's three runs of steelhead. We have summer, winter, and fall run steelhead. There's coho salmon. There's lamprey eels. Right now, the green sturgeon are running, so we've got these seven-foot diamondback monsters, prehistoric monsters running up the river as we speak here. There's candlefish, also known as ulicon, which are starting to maybe make a small comeback right now. So the point being that every single day of the year, there's a lot happening on this river. Some run of fish is coming up river. Some other run of fish is making their way downstream. Something is spawning, etc. There's, it's a real gem, it's a real treasure of biodiversity in terms of anadromous fish on the Klamath River. And so in managing and restoring all these things, the Iraq tribe, through its culture and its constitution, has a self-mandate to manage and restore the Klamath River. And so when they look at how to do that, the Yurok tribe, and the Hoopa Valley Tribe, they're always thinking of all the runs of fish and not just the main runs that are managed, like uh, Fall Run Chinook, for example, are the main, is the main run that's managed. So when we're thinking about things like dam removal, the Yurok Tribe wasn't just thinking about Fall Run Chinook. The Yurok Tribe was thinking about lamprey, about coho reestablishing their habitat, about bringing back an extinct run, a spring-run Chinook that used to be up there, and things like that. And so the tribe always has its eye on the diversity of the river and the community and the river's health itself. Well, it would really be refreshing if our instruments of government had such a forward-looking and comprehensive sense of it's it's mandate for environmental stewardship. It's it's really refreshing to see the tribe managing with you know such a focus on sustainability. So, Mike, we've been talking about a federal court here refusing to act or refusing a, a request to change its previous order. Another fairly big wheel federal court also refused to act this week. The Supreme Court of the United States 
declined to take up a appeal lodged by the North Coast Railroad Authority of the decision that the California Supreme Court made last July in our challenge to the NCRA's refusal to follow the California Environmental Quality Act. So this now leaves us back in state court with the chance to really hold the agency accountable for its failure to follow the law. It's a pretty significant, I think, watershed moment for that case and for the future of the Eel River, I think. And I'm just frankly pretty excited about where we are right now between the lawsuit, which we can now prosecute, and the state Senate's efforts to pass a bill, SB 1029, that would actually abolish the NCRA and create a new agency, the Great Redwood Trail Agency, to manage 157 miles of the line from Willits North. It looks to me like we don't yet know how we're going to get there, but we're pretty sure we're going to get to a future in which the NCRA is not threatening the eel. So that's some good news. That's awesome. I I just want to say congratulations to all involved for all their hard work. This is this is a major moment for those who love the Eel River. We can hope so. But we've still got a lot of work to do to get SB 1029 passed and signed, and then there's going to be a lot of work to do to get a trail built that, you know, is really sustainable and protects the eel and gives more people a way to actually engage with the wonderful river. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So thanks so much for being on the show today, Mike, and looking forward to working with you in the years to come. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Scott. I really appreciate it. And I hope any of you haven't been to the Trinity or the Klamath River and you live up here, you really need to come out and take a look at it. It's a real treasure. Absolutely. Close to the eel in importance. (laughs) (laughs) Well said, Scott. All right. Take care, Mike. Okay, man. Talk to you later. So this has been the Eco News Report. My name's Scott Greeson, and I've been your host for the past half hour. I was speaking with Mike Belchek, who's the Senior Water Policy Analyst with the Yurok Tribe. As I mentioned, he's also president of the Friends of the Eel River Board. If you have any questions or comments about this program, you can call the KHSU listener comment line at 826-6089. You can hear this broadcast again on the archived programs page of the station's website at khsu.org. The Eco News Report is produced at Humboldt State University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. Tune in again next week at this same time for the Eco News Report. 